Bears Block, episode 17, brought to you by the Soul Glow family of premium hair care products. Just let your soul shine through. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, screenwriter, comic book writer, and uh, dapper reprobate. I, I, I love the, the reprobate uh, drop. I can't even say it right now. Uh, if, if you missed our uh, our last episode, our comic class powwow with uh, former DC editor Jim Higgins, duplicate scribe Carla Nappi, and monster matador creator Stephen Prince, I highly suggest you back it on up and check that out. But as always, we have a great show today. Uh, Apollonia, let's bring the guests on. Here they come. Elisa and David. Elisa, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Elisa Wiki, and I am a new comic book artist, but a seasoned gallery artist, illustrator, graphic designer, Jill of all trades. <laughs> and, and, and you have a hedgehog in the background. We talked about I do. I'm fascinated yes. by it. <laughs> I will probably pull him out later. He... Um, is very food motivated, so I'm sure he won't be upset. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> and uh, David Barron, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, how you guys doing? Uh, David Barron, I've been in comics uh, for far too long, happily. Um, I work on Batman currently uh, with DC Comics. I've uh, created and wrote uh, the sci-fi adventure miniseries Stained. And uh, currently uh, working with Elisa on a Young Reader project. Nice. nice. And, and, and you guys have kind of teed up uh, today's um, topic uh, pretty nicely. Um, that, uh, that project you were just talking about, it's called the Cobblestone Chronicles, right? Um, the two, two of you kind of working together. And so today, um, you know, we're going to keep it loose as, as per usual, and, and we'll end up, uh, you know, talking uh, about anywhere and everywhere. Um, but I want to start off with this theme of transitioning, right? Um, uh, uh, the two of you are kind of in this period of career transition. Uh, Elisa, uh, as you sort of alluded to, you are a well-known gallery artist. In fact, um, we were talking um, off camera. Uh, I knew your work uh, before I ever met you, right? Um, uh, because I, I uh, David Barron and I are, are old friends from uh, the, the con uh, uh, circuit. We've paneled together before and, and hung out and whatnot. And, um, and he said, you know, hey, I'd like to come on, and I'd like to bring my artist on, and and you know, um, and and when he dropped your name, I'm like, I know that name from somewhere, and and <laughs> and uh, and you know, he's like, well, yeah, she's not a, you know, she's not, you know, an old comic person or anything like that, and then I, I start doing the searches, and uh, you, you've showed several times at Gallery 1988, which is like my favorite gallery in Los Angeles, and before I love like that gallery. Yeah, before the world ended, uh, I was there all the time, and and you know they know me by name and by sight there, and uh, and, um, uh, and 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 your work is wonderful. So um, so uh, you know w when w when the show ends, you're going to want to go and you're going to want to read this comic, and you're going to want to read uh, you know David's uh, other books and whatnot. But also go to the Gallery 1988 website, uh, uh, search uh, Elisa's name, and there's some great art for sale up there. And then uh, you also have a great website too. Um, but um, 
long-winded way of saying you are now in a period of tra of transitioning where I know you have a lot of friends in comics and whatnot, but yes. but you go from being a, a, a very well-established gallery artist and graphic designer, and now you are uh, moving into comic illustration, which I think is interesting. At the same time, uh, David, who is a, um, I, I, David Barron, because there are two Davids here, so I need to clarify. So Barron uh, is a, uh, a well-established kind of under, uh, you know, uh, under says it, uh, kind of like a Hall of Fame colorist career, you know, primarily as a, a colorist, as an artist. And you have recently, um, you know, transitioned more into to writing and creating. And in fact, when we first met, I had you on one of the most popular panels that, that I put together for, for cons is a publishing your first comic panel. Um, and uh, uh, David Barron, you and I met uh, because I had you on my panel uh, talking mm -hmm. about sort of how and why you created your first book, uh, Stained. Um, I thought that was interesting, but um, you have ratcheted up recently, right? Uh, you, I think you told me you have uh, four creator-owned titles that are uh, that, that are maybe coming out this year. And yeah, uh, I, I have four four uh, in production. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so 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 let me just tee that up. I mean, let's talk about um, you know let's talk about transitioning. And I think that uh, uh, Avaloni and I will both have a lot to say about transitioning because he and I transitioned from uh, film careers into this uh, this madness also. Um, but 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 how and why, guys? And uh, and and what was the pull of comics? And and how has it been for you, I, David? In your case, what was the pull of writing? Um, and uh, and 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 where are you guys going from here? Well, you know, for me, my whole career has been a transition. So um, for those that don't know my past, I started when I was 15 years old. Um, as as uh, at that time, you were even called colorists. You were called, you know, digital uh, separators. And um, I was 15, sophomore in high school, working with Wildstorm Productions uh, Image Comics uh, through a company called In Color, which was owned at that time uh, by Clydeen Nee uh, from uh, San Diego Comic-Con fame. A lot of people know her through that. And then John Nee, who's currently the uh, publisher of Marvel, Marvel Comics. Um, so I started there, but at that job, you, you colored the comic books, you filmed the comic books, you, you know, and when I mean film, you literally had to, you know, make the CMYK plates that we shipped, you know, to the Canadian printers. And so there was already transitioning in my, you know, blood right there of the different hats that you had to wear. Uh, when I went to Wildstorm Effects, um, when I turned 18, uh, we still did a lot of stuff, but at that point it was just coloring. And that now we're called colorists. Um, we started getting rid of uh, color guides. And, um, but then I transferred uh, or, you know, transitioned from there to Wildstorm Design as a designer. Uh, where we did le uh, letter pages, logos, um, you know, book design. From there, I transitioned into a freelance colorist. Um, and as soon as you do freelance, as, as we all know, now you are a, a you know accountant, you know, office manager, you know, yeah. you, you are you are all the different you know um, you know hats every you know whole job has. Um, when I started so young, my my portfolio wasn't a coloring portfolio. Digital coloring was a brand new thing. My portfolio uh, was pencils. And, and what I did is I created my own comics. I wrote my own comics with my friends. So I've always thought of myself as a comic book creator more than 
um, you know, just a colorist or, you know, any one job. And I always looked at other people that way too. I always try to find out, you know, what, what do other people have, you know, in their bag? Some people are, you know, pure, you know, I'm an artist. I don't want to write. Uh, I'm a penciler. I never want to ink. I'm an inker. I never want to draw. I'm a colorist. I never want to do anything else. That's cool. You know, that's great. Uh, but for me, it was never that way. And the biggest part of this transition into trying to switch my career of being a well-known colorist to a well-known writer, um, it's more the transition isn't uh, on the technical side or the creative side, because I always, you know, as we talked before, um, I t always have told stories through my colors anyways, but now it's the business side that is really through a transition. You guys coming from film to comics, same way. It's, it's not so much the creative side that changes or your dedication and time, you know, uh, commitments. It's really, how do I make the deals for business to get what I'm trying to do happen, you know, happening? How do I make it happen? And that is really from the last time we talked on that panel about stained to today is really from my perspective is a, uh, was a long transition of really trying to figure out, you know, how, how do I play that game to, you know, knock on people's door and say, you know, fund this project or how do I, you know, go to an artist and say, I'm going to fund this project, come along and have them actually believe. And it's, it's not an easy task. Um, you know, I've known Elisa for, it four years at least yeah. i want to say it's probably seven because i think we seven oops yeah because because cons i mean it just goes by so quick yeah, yeah. No, absolutely and um seven seven i completely believe that um <laughs> and uh and it's only now that you know her and i are working together so it's it's you know there's always a transition of you know friendships and relationships and um you know the right time for the right project uh, but for me, my transition into writing is not so much anything more than turning it into a business more than a hobby or a passion. And that's really where, where it goes. Well, it's, you know, it's also that thing of getting people to see beyond the parameters they placed on you, uh, getting people to perceive you as something other than, and, you know, sadly, a lot of people don't understand and this is true very true in film and i experienced it in film i became a professional film editor and was that for at least a quarter century because i was a director who could never afford to hire an editor editor the editor works the longest period of the project and he's the because of that unless you have a movie star is like a fairly expensive piece of the pie so I was like, well, okay, I'll do it. And then a producer asked me to edit somebody else's film. And I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not. An ed and they're like, you've edited three feature films. Like at what point do you accept that you actually are an editor and other people should pay you to do this and pay you for what you know about filmmaking and getting people to see you as something else once you've put in all of the time doing this other thing is a it's a trick. I mean, and it's, it's a, it's a shift. And most of my reviews of my work always will mention that I'm a colorist, even though it's, it's about me writing and it's still, you know, a lot of it. Oh, you, you know, 
uh, and they'll use the word transition. Or, you know, I just got a quote that I love from a friend today that said, you know, he was already, you know, a Hall of Fame colorist. Now, you know, now he's knocking it out of the park with writing. Great quote. Thanks. But it's, you can't shake <laughs> right. that. And I think, I think, honestly, my career as a colorist being so successful has actually uh, made my transition to be a writer in comics harder because oh, yeah. um, you, you kind of get that thing. Well, of course he can write now because people will give him jobs because they know him as a colorist, not because I'm actually a writer or, you know, I get it. I get it from a lot of writer friends that when they read, you know, my book stain or something new, they go, Oh, I didn't know you could write. You know, it's like, you know, thinking like writing is not something that every child does, you know, in fifth grade, you know, it's like, yeah you know, it's, it's, it's not a new concept. It's, it shouldn't be writing should be, I didn't know you could tell a story. Right. And then at the, and then if you say that my point is, then you didn't know I could tell a story through coloring and you didn't really know what coloring is, or you don't really know what, you know, um, uh, comics is. I mean, one of the things that I really love about working with Elisa is her artwork without any of my words is a story. I mean, we could print this whole thing, and I think I think Elisa even said your husband was like, "Oh, there's words," <laughs> you know, <laughs> had, uh, right? I mean, he was he was like, "Oh yeah, I guess I guess it is a comic with words," you know, because her art already told a story, and that's and that's really what every step of comics is supposed to be. And then when you put it all together, you know, it's this beautiful, you know, um, you know, masterpiece symphony of of creators coming together. Um, ultimately just like film and, and any other yeah. good form of entertainment. Yeah. Ideally every member of the crew and that's the crew of a comic book, the crew of a film, the crew of a television show, the crew of a play is on board with storytelling and yeah. knows storytelling. My wife is a costume designer and she said she stopped making independent films because she was very tired of working with directors that didn't understand that costumes were also a huge storytelling thing and how much information and character and everything you convey just through costumes, just through color. And uh, that's why this compartmentalization, as you say, a great colorist is telling your story. A great letterer is telling your story just as much as the penciler, just as much as the inker. It's, uh, it's all an interconnected thing. And if someone isn't telling your story, they're not good at, being a colorist or a letterer or a penciler right. like you've all got it and that again on a film it's the same thing everyone has to have their arms around the story that you're telling and be true to it and not just be looking the bad members of the crew i've always seen like production designers and you they you look at the sketch and you go yeah but we're not going to see two-thirds of this is that is that for your reel is that for your portfolio because None of this is actually in the movie. I've seen set designs where I go, yeah, but I don't need like two thirds of this is off camera for what we actually need to shoot. And it's because they're not invested in the story. They're invested in making a pretty set or they're right. invested in the, in the costumes or, or in the case of actors, they're invested in their, they're invested in their performance, not in how it fits into the overall storytelling. And it, to serve the project is the ultimate goal, right? Oh, that's that's what we're all supposed to be doing, is serving the story being told. 
I feel like mm. I have lucked into the transition from what I've been doing into comic books because I actually was telling David, uh, I went to school for children's book illustration. So the concept of telling a story is not something that is foreign to me, even though this is my first foray into comic books. But it's been really interesting for me to um, have, I don't have the weight around my shoulders that David has with everybody knowing him as a colorist. Nobody knows who I am. So it's been a fantastically freeing transition to just do something for the, solely to tell the story, which has been really nice. And it's it's actually been really funny. A lot of the people that I've met through the comic conventions are surprised that this is my debut as a as a comic book artist because they've seen me so much that they just assumed that I had to have a few books under my belt. So I feel like I don't have to I don't have to break free of a mold that people already thought I was in. I have to actually fit into it instead to to actually add a, a comic book to my resume, which is kind of funny to me that it's just like like people already thought that I did it. And I'm like, no, no, this is the first time. <laughs> I'm I'm always curious about this because I started writing comics six years ago after being entirely in the film industry before that. And uh, I decided to take it seriously and sit down and read a bunch of books on comic book writing just out of sheer like, let's see what other people think about this. And I don't want to be faking it and I want to kind of learn the language a little bit. That is not necessarily the only way to do it. And I'm curious, uh, Elisa, if you just read David's script and produced art for it, or did you look at comic books and go, okay, how do people break these things down? And how's the, what's the, you know, like, did you feel like you needed to learn the form or were you familiar with the form as I think I someone was, who reads comic books? Yeah, I've, I'm not a stranger to comics. Um, I have always loved them and I have like so many friends that make so many beautiful books and the children's book angle also has helped a lot with the sequential aspect and also kind of rolling back into the does it aid the story when I was learning how to do children's books a lot of it was you know the the writing is its own art form and the writing supports the art and the art supports the writing you fill in the spaces in between it's kind of more of a dance rather than a show off this is my story it's it's our story together so mm -hmm. um but i i think the the biggest learning curve for me has been more of like the technical aspects of it because sure. i just i didn't want to do something and then find out that it gave David more work than I needed to be giving him, which I, there was a little bit of a thing where he's like, mm, Hey, you gotta, you gotta watch those blacks that you're putting in on your pages. Be really sure that what you want black is, is cause it's going to be well, there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Rila. I, I was just gonna say we should say for the for, you know, for the audience that um, uh, uh, David, you're also coloring Cobblestone Chronicles, so uh, that that makes it a, a an odd monster. So uh, continue. <laughs> well, that uh, yeah, I was gonna say that's that's the one of the unique things of being one of the co-creators 
and the writer, you and then the colors and letterer of this project is mm -hmm. you get a lot of control. And I was talked into lettering um, by uh, the writer of of the hit comic Chew, John Layman. You knew you were going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny too John because John talked you into lettering. <laughs> yeah, wait, 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 wait. We had John Layman on uh, the show uh, a few weeks back talking about lettering. That was, you know, yeah. it, 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 we all thought it was funny. It's like, okay, you have John Layman on. And let's talk lettering. That was like yeah. that was funny. But yeah. Layman is also I Chew is one of the few comic books that I actually have the whole run of. <laughs> oh. nice. John John Layman stays with me at my desk. So he was my editor at Wildstorm. He's one of oh. the first people to really believe in my colors. He wanted me on uh, almost every book he edited, and we you know we've worked together for a really long time. Um, but yeah, I got this <laughs> frame at one of our lunches. And I put him in it, and he's been in this frame like this for you know close to twenty years. That's great. Uh, I um I so so I saw a tidbit online. Tell me if it's true that the the name of your first production company was Ill I L L, and it stood for I Love Layman. Is that true? I Love Layman Productions. Yeah, Ill Productions okay, was, nice. was really I love. There's there's a whole long like, side story to this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll say it briefly so we can get back to the topic. But sure. But this is, I mean, this is true Barcon talk. Uh, it's just, this one's being recorded, so I have to, I have to say it. <laughs> Edit wisely. It wisely. <laughs> At that time, Layman uh, did not have the best, I mean, I don't know what I want to say on camera. Uh, <laughs> well, while you, while you gather- He got in trouble. Words. He got in trouble with DC Comics because of our book authority. Um, and, uh, you guys can, you know, people are watching this, they can go research the, the, you know, censoring of DC comics at the time with our book authority and award-winning book. And, um, he got in trouble. Uh, and then I went freelance and they needed a fictitious business name. That's the only way they pay me. They wouldn't pay me under David Barron. You know, you have to have a, because just corporate, whatever, it's not that way anymore. Right. And, um, and I was like, well, I love lemon. I love lemon. I love done, you know, ill productions. And, uh, and they had to write checks to, I love layman productions <laughs> weekly. Cause I did a ton of work back then. That's I mean, literally brilliant. weekly and for a good amounts of money. <laughs> and the people that were signing the checks were the ones that did not like him. It, you know, so it was like, and, and you got to understand, I was 20 at the time. You know, I was 20, 21, 22. I did not understand the politics of this. It was not a jab at DC Comics. DC Comics has always been good to me. Um, it was just one of those things I did not realize how they were seeing it. So weekly, they're like, oh, I love Layman Productions. You know, who is it? You, know, you would always ask, who is this guy? You know, who am I signing this check to? It better not be him or, you know, who knows? That's just yeah. me thinking. But, yeah, he uh, – but going back to me, he's the one who who talking me into lettering, and I tried to get a different letterer. One of one of the people that I uh, really love, and he was just too busy. He couldn't do the preview in time, and and so I said, you know, lettering is the one thing I never done in comics. So I've I've designed, I've edited, um, I art directed, um, wrote, colored, you know, penciled, inked, you know, I've done it all except for lettering. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to figure it out this time. You know, finally, I'm just going to figure it out, and. Um, and it gives you a unique control. So when going back to what Elisa said about, you know, the, the blacks, I said as a colorist, now that I have a little bit more control of the project, 
you know, if you don't put these blacks in, I can make dark color and it'll look nicer. You know, it'll look, it'll look different and give me a bit more control as a colorist. And um, something that you can't always say, you know, when you're working with Jock or, or, you know, Doug Monkey and things like that, even though I would absolutely tell Doug and Jock the same things, like, you know, and they appreciate it. You know, we always talk about, you know, what, what makes a better product because ultimately what we started this conversation off is how are we going to tell the best story possible? And that's, that's always my main goal. Um, so then as a writer, you know, it's like, oh, I got three hats, you know, how can I do it? And then it's the same as, you know, the classic, you know, writer artist battle and it's a good battle. Um, but it's like, make sure you leave wor- uh, room for my words. And then at the same time, it's the Never. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, but it looks really cool this way. It's like, yeah, right. yeah. And so you're, you're constantly trying to, you know, merge together, but that's the beauty of comics. And, and it's, it's just like a director letting their actor, you know, do a take, you know, any way they want, if they feel strongly about, you know, doing it in a certain way and a director feeling strongly to do it another way, you kind of do both and see what, you know, see what, people like the best when it all comes down, you know, to the editing. Well, and your, and your perspective changes when you're the one in charge. It reminds me of a great story Barry Sonnenfeld told about his first day directing as a feature. You know, he said, when you're, a, when you're a director of photography and he was a brilliant one for years, you always want a dolly move. You never want to use the zoom lens because that's creepy and horrible and weak and cheap and doesn't look the same and it's not the same photographic effect and you're always arguing with directors i want to do a 20 foot dolly track and they are always like can we just zoom can you zoom in slowly a little bit and no one will notice he said literally his first day of directing i think it was on the adams family the gp came to him and said okay i want to put down a 30 foot long dolly track and he looked at the sun and went can you just can we zoom in just can you zoom in a little bit he's like wow that took four hours for me to make the transition to guy who now understands why we don't lay 30 feet of dolly track on a short schedule. Uh, and, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about knowing it's about looking at the big picture instead of, but this 30 foot long dolly track is going to look great on my reel. Forget what it does to our schedule <laughs> or the movie or anything else. I think this shot's going to look great. And uh, caring about the big picture definitely changes how you look at your part of it, your right. small part of it. That's when you tell them no, but you could put it on a skateboard. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Sit in a wheelchair and we'll push yeah. you. It'll be great. You see so that the razor reason. over there? Go hop on that razor. Yeah. It's a really good idea. So, so Baron, you, you have four uh, creator-owned books that you're writing. Are you coloring and lettering all of them? <laughs> or? Uh, my plan is my plan is to color uh, and letter all of them. I was. Oh uh, wow! I, I just got. I'm still uh, for one project. I'm looking for a, a, a artist, and um, and we're actively searching right now. And I got rejected by um, my top choice, and not because they're not into it. I just can't afford them period right. mm-hmm. and um they uh and they would have their own colorist because it's a it's a team sure. and uh, and i would be a-okay with it i'm not opposed to working with other colors it's a financial thing as we you know kind of mentioned early on mm-hmm. um it's uh if, if i could afford other colors i have a, a good long list of colors who i just think are amazing um 
I, when stain came out, I ended up coloring stain because the three people I approached their schedules were too busy. They couldn't do it. Um, at that point I had money set aside, uh, for a colorist and, and they couldn't go for these projects and the artists that I'm, you know, trying to work with, I want to color them. Um, mm-hmm. with, with Elisa, I was, we, we talked about, is she going to, you know, digitally paint the whole thing? Is she going to, um, you know, you know, color it? Is she going to, you know, what would she like to do? And we had a conversation about it and ultimately we decided, you know, for me to color it. Um, and I think production wise, it's, it's been the right choice. And I think a lot of times when you go with your gut and how you feel about, you know, certain roles, you know, it, it does work out. Um, you know, I think the lettering has been, uh, for my first time lettering, I think it's been phenomenal. I'm sure I'm going to look back, you know, on, on my next project or even at the end of this project and go like, Ooh, maybe we should polish this up or, or that up. But ultimately I have multiple letterists looking at my work. Um, so far, um, they have given feedback on our, we did a four page preview of, of kind of like the main character for, for the holidays. And, um, I got a lot of good feedback, you know, on that. And I've taken it, uh, into the actual, uh, graphic novel. And so far I've gotten zero feedback in terms of, you know, fix that or that just spin all, Oh, it looks great. So, um, I mean, again, you, you've been in comics. I don't want to slight, uh, any letter like, Oh, I just picked it up and it's great. Uh, no, it's, it's taking uh, a ton of work to figure out how to letter like a professional. Um, and just like how Elisa said, you know, I've been a part of comics for so long. It's not like I'm not used to looking at lettering and how it should be with that right. said, um, we, you know, we were working on a proposal, uh, all this week and, I got a lot of notes, you know, editorial notes uh, from different people about lettering choices in the proposal. Cause there's always, you know, certain things for uh, certain methods for certain projects. And uh, you know, so, you know, to anyone out there who's trying to think like, you know, I'm going to transition to this. It's, it's not a snap. I mean, some people make it look like a, you know, a breeze like, Oh, you just did it. Yeah. It took me hours upon hours to figure it out. And even then, you know, maybe I settled, you know, on something, but, um, uh, it's, it's, it's been an interesting transition to a letterer as well. Uh, I think that's something interesting that you say though, that like, it's a, a, like a cumulative moment. All of the other aspects of your career have brought you to a point where it's like, you didn't just jump into lettering and magically know how to do it. You have observed what other people have done and you've taken things that you've learned from other aspects of your career to transition to being a letterer, perhaps a little more smoothly than someone that just tries to letter something for their first time, which also uh, this is technically my debut, not my, my art debut in comics, but um, I don't think that I could have undertaken a project like this right out of college. I think that I would have been overwhelmed and I think that I would have second guessed myself in a lot of choices artistically and at this point all the other things that I've done even though they aren't directly related to comics have brought me to a point where I am comfortable working on this project so it's like it it was a natural next step to have been surrounded by it to have been doing all of these other artistic things and and now it's like I can pull different parts of my past experiences into this experience 
and move forward with a lot more confidence and a lot less like imposter syndrome. Like right. I'm, it's easier for me to say now, like this is my debut than it would have been if it had been my debut 10 years ago. It, it, you know? It's not like you have been drawing your whole life right. and exactly. professionally for the last 10 plus years. It's, it's one of those things. It's like with me with lettering, it's not like I just opened illustrator for the first time. You know, I've been designing, you know, an illustrator for, for 20 plus years. And um, I just never had to use it as, you know, a, a letterist. And um, it's it's an interesting, you know, thing that Elisa brings up of no one. No, there's no such thing as an overnight success. You know, it's just it's just you overnight discovered them, not, right. you know, not them. You know, they they've been working their tail off you know, for, you know, five to 20 years, you know, mm -hmm. putting in, you know, the time to learn the craft and to understand it. I mean, and I, I, mean, I think it says a lot too, that we've known each other for so long. And it's just like the, the stars aligned well enough where a project, you had a project that you were like, this is the one that we can work on together. It was not a instant, like, anything there was nothing instant about it other than you knowing that you wanted me to draw it yeah you, you know when i said four <laughs> years i think it was four <laughs> years ago i think it was four years ago when i said hey you want to do something together <laughs> i think I that swear, sounds more I, like it i think yeah, it's been that long uh that long phoenix coming comic -Con, right phoenix comic-con in in a bar you know the hotel bar oh, yeah. where we're either having a pre-show drink or a you know post-show drink no i'm pretty sure it was when i i won like 20 bucks off of you playing dice in that bar in phoenix i'm pretty okay. sure that's when it, we nice. were like Speaking we should work together. love it well <laughs> you got you guys are touching on two two very important topics to me at least one is networking playing i always dice. say people people deeply misunderstand what networking is and that it's about making friends and then someday down the, the line as your friendship develops you discover the thing you want to work on together yeah. that's good networking you're not meeting each other with stars with money signs in your eyes you're developing a personal relationship that can become a professional relationship down the road or it might not and that's just fine too and the other thing that's hugely important to me, and I think this would be obvious to anyone who looks at my IMDb page, is that any experience is good experience. Anything can feed what you do. I always, actors always want to get jobs as waiters or waitresses because of the flexibility. But I say, you know, work on a crew, be a PA, so that the first time that you you get a good gig as an actor. You're not baffled by the set. You're not wondering what everybody does. You have no idea where to stand or what to do or how to be out of people's way. Spend a little time on sets, whatever it takes. I actually give talks at high schools and my main talk at the high school level as I transition into the professional world, uh, especially for the kids that are bypassing college because school was just not their go. Um, the biggest thing I talk to them about is exactly what you just said and i put it in comic book terms and i and i talk about how we once had this person who's now a professional artist um freelance successful career uh actually is in a family uh now because he married another artist so um they're together and but he started out um as our 
um, what, what, what do they call him? Office manager, you know, and because, and he would draw nonstop at the front desk and people that would go past would just, Oh, that's, that's great. You know, that looks great. That looks great. And over and over, then all of a sudden a project pops up and says, why don't we get him to do it? Right. You know, look how great his stuff is. He draws every day and he's, he's already a part of us. Let's, let's get him to do it. And then, and then it worked out successfully and it goes. And, and I tell people two things. I said, I said, success comes and, and I'm a, a sports coach as well. Uh, I coach soccer and, um, and it goes true with in, in that field, any field, it's just life. Success comes from opportunity and preparedness. If you, if you don't ever get your opportunity, chances are you're not prepared anyways. Um, but if you do get an opportunity and you're not prepared, that opportunity is blown because if you're not prepared to step up to the plate, um, you know, and, you know, to the job and, and shine, it doesn't matter if you have an opportunity or not. So many people I know complain that they don't get opportunities and I'm saying no one gets opportunities. You have to prepare yourself and then all of a sudden what you perceive as a lack of opportunities become opportunities. Um, and that's the same with the transitioning into writing. You know, wh- why are people thinking of me as a colorist? Well, I have not prepared myself efficient enough to be looked at as a writer. And now why are more and more people knowing me as a writer is because I prepared myself over these last you know five years as a writer. And now as opportunities present themselves, it, it works more and more. It sounds like after you're done writing comic books, you should write uh, something to rival the secret. You can lean into uh, telling people how to take their their opportunity preparedness. I don't know. There's something there, I think. I think she's telling you to start a cult. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm all for it. Yeah. You mean, yeah, I mean, been there, done that. It's, uh, it's a reason why my, my screen name's My Zombies. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I've told this story before, but in 2000, I met Joe Casada at a cocktail party, and we talked for an hour about movies and writing and whatever. He said, hey, you ever thought about writing a comic book? And I hadn't. I hadn't studied it. I knew nothing about it. I was a fan of comic books, but it wasn't a career path that I had pursued because it was just one more mountain and movies were their own mountain and I didn't need to find more mountains to climb. But I said, yeah, sure. And he gave me his email address and set me up with Tom Brevoort. And they had a young writers program at the time. And I was still able to be categorized as young, just barely. And, uh, and it didn't, you know, for a million reasons, I had a day job as an editor at the time and coming home from 12 hours in an edit bay to master an entirely new medium I didn't understand, I I didn't have it in me in 2000. And right. it wasn't until 2014, I was a friend introduced me to a comic book editor who asked me the same question. And I was like, yes, I this is a thing that I want to do and I can do. And I jumped into it with both feet and made damn sure to get him a pitch within a week of being asked and get him a script on time and on deadline that looked exactly like a comic book script was supposed to look but it's that thing i was the imagine an opportunity that good the editor-in-chief of marvel comics says to you hey you want to write a comic book but i if he had been the president of paramount saying do you want to direct a feature film right i was entirely ready for that conversation right 
Well, and, well, and I, I will also say this about networking is, and and this goes to how you know with me and Ryland as well, how we how we met and Elisa. Never, I mean, you're talking about Joe Casada. You know, who doesn't want to talk to the editor in chief of any go? But in reality, those meetings and time um, are few and far between. Where meeting just other professionals networking that way and really sincerely getting to know people and who you like is very key because comics is a small is a small community but so is hollywood you know truly it's a it's a small community everyone knows everybody um and the truth is is you got to know people on who you like i think it was just olivia wilde who just came out i think it was her uh, oh yeah the no asshole policy yes yeah Yeah. and i was thinking like yeah that's my policy too you know it's like I mean, I, I just, I didn't watch it. I didn't read it. Uh, I try to stay away from, you know, any forms of that type of, you know, media, but just the the catchphrase I agree with, you know, just that tagline. I agree with it because who wants to work with awful people? I've worked with awful people in my career. And as soon as I work with them and you're awful, I, I don't take your yeah. project anymore. Period. I don't know. I, 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 yeah. I, I have a list and I encourage everybody to keep lists. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it, it's you know, I mean, after after 15 plus years working in Hollywood and then, you know, about five more in this comics business, I mean, it, the you know, I just see it more and more every day that, I mean, this is, is very much a team sport, right? It, yeah. It's like you're saying, p- people hire their friends. Um, uh, whenever I have an opportunity uh, in the comic book industry, if it's uh, oh, uh, an online, they're trying to staff an online con or whatever. When I see a door open, the first thing I try and do is jam 12 of my, fr- my friends through it before it closes. And, and my friends return the favor. They do the exact same thing. And we all kind of like rise up together. That, that's what I've noticed. And, and, and yeah, that no asshole thing. It's like, um, I mean, I, I, I call it almost the Cretan test, you know, where it's like, you can tell immediately if someone is like, is one of us or not. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Alisa, uh, we, we popped on and, and it, it was just natural. Like we, we, we could have sat there and talked for an hour just yeah. about random stuff and and it's so i mean it, it was the same thing with david baron where it's like we we, we kind of got we kind of got uh, uh paired up on this panel at long beach comic-con and there were four or five other people on the panel and it was no coincidence that baron and i ended up in the hallway talking for like an hour afterwards uh and that we've remained in touch and every time we see each other at a con we you know have a, a big long conversation and um it's because you immediately recognize okay yeah this is a person who's who who is who is playing the game like i am with with, with honor and with uh uh um Sorry. you know they're yeah yeah exactly and um i think it, it, uh, i think i got but, really lucky um in a sense when i started going to these comic conventions because i i read comic books i know comic books but i didn't know people in comics per se i if you had told me a name of a writer or a colorist or something like that i'd have been like i i couldn't put two and two together i mean it's not necessarily just in comics though i have a funny uh my husband every so often will remind me of a time where we were at a we were at a bar called the roughed up duck in uh, laramie wyoming and uh, um, there was a gentleman at the bar and he was talking to the bartender and I'm like, that guy's voice sounds so familiar. He sounds just like a famous actor and I could not think of who it was. And uh, I, it took me three years to piece together that the guy at the end of the bar sounded exactly like Donald Sutherland. And when I told my husband, Chris, that he was like, how could you not have come up with the name Donald Sutherland? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, it, I couldn't put two and two together. So 
names have never been my strong suit by any means. So I think that that has helped me a lot in, in comics in a way because when David came up to my table for the first time, the very first year that we met, I'm like, the the only thing that I knew about him is that he was a guy that was excited about my stuff and that's all I needed to know. So it's like, I think that earlier too, I think David, you said something about networking isn't going up to someone with dollar signs in your eyes right away. It's, you know, have, making a genuine connection, which I yep. think is kind of frightening to some people, especially when, you know, they're trying to hide the dollar signs in their eyes, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I have like, ignorance is bliss for me in that sense where it's like, I can just treat someone like a person and find out if I actually like them and then find out after the fact that they do really cool stuff. And I'm like, well, that's, that's neat. I'm really happy for you. Like, uh, the people that uh, Baron alone has in introduced me to, I think would be like, a many comic book nerds wet dream. And I'm like, uh, that's cool. It was nice. They were nice. That was, they were nice to meet. That was fun. <laughs> and then I go about my day and I'm like, what I have, I have deadlines. I have stuff to draw. Like what else am I supposed to do? <laughs> well, that's one of the, one of the positives of being in Hollywood and working on movies for so long is, you know, two things. One is that I'm a little blase about what someone's resume was, even if they're amazing. And there are exceptions to that rule. I had dinner with Gene Kelly once. It was hard to not be blown away by having dinner with Gene Kelly. It's pretty but, cool. <laughs> but on average, it's like you can meet fairly amazing people with amazing resumes and you have to be cool. You have no choice but to be cool. Otherwise, you're a problem and you need to be fired. So there's that. But there's also, and this maybe is a little funny, but there's the low expectation that anyone you meet, be it Joe Casado or anyone, is going to be the answer to all your prayers and change your life. So the older the get, the, you get, it's easy to be blasé about meeting someone famous or powerful, whatever, because you're like, this isn't, this isn't going to do anything for me. So I can approach you just as another human being that I just met. And you know, I've probably told this story before on the show, but you know, my business partner these days is Kevin Eastman. The world is full of people who would have lost their shit meeting Kevin Eastman, but. Uh, you know, it probably helped that the furthest thing from my mind when I met Kevin Eastman was the co-creator of the Ninja Turtles is going to be my best friend and we're going to make something new together. Yeah. <laughs> like, that would not have occurred to, in a trillion years if you had taken me aside and said, be careful because this is the most important personal business meeting of your life is this guy sitting down next to you in the bar and being introduced by a mutual friend. This is going to rewrite your whole future, this five minutes. Because I never assume that any five minutes is going to rewrite my future, I can be relaxed in any given five minutes. Like, oh, it's a guy who How nice. He created the Ninja Turtles. Good for him. I had we no idea who Kevin Eastman was until uh, a number. The My first introduction to who Kevin Eastman was, I knew who the Ninja Turtles were. That's. I'm not, I don't live under not a rock. not be a but, member of Western civilization. Yeah. Right <laughs> but I, I, again, the name thing, I was like, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you off the top of my head who created the Ninja Turtles. And the way that I remember his name now is my Chris, my husband, took me to, it was a, a showing of one of the Ninja Turtles movies, one of the live action ones 
we went to the draft house in town and it was Kevin Eastman was there to do a Q and a afterwards, but he had partnered with one of the breweries in the area to do a pizza flavored beer. And that's the first connection that I have is like, Oh, he made that pizza flavored beer. My Kevin Eastman story is I just got to color a cover he did for um, a store exclusive just recently for, I think it was turtles 100. And um, I, I took the brave approach of saying, well, it's Eastman, so I'm going to color it in only black and white tones. <laughs> so it's like people were like, wait, you colored this? And I had to like show them the difference of like all the different things I did, you know, in tonal, you know, type of stuff. Yeah, no, go back and look at Mirage comics from the 80s yeah. and you yeah. will understand that creative decision. Was that yeah. for Brave New World? It was. Yeah, Andy's a good friend of mine. I love Brave New World. Yeah. Yep, Andy. Andy's great. At Andy, we actually used his store to uh, promote our our uh, latest project uh, with a free download um, uh, for that holiday special. Yeah, no, Andy. Andy at Brave New World in Santa Clarita is, is yeah. No, it's a great store. He's a great guy. He, he yeah. he's a turtles obsessive, so obviously he is. He, he, is. he loves all it, of that. He's, turtles he's in Dune. It, it was funny when it when I met Kevin Eastman. I mean, because the the Ninja Turtles were were so formative for me. I mean, it was it was just such a a, a big deal. And so it was a big deal when when Avalone introduced me to, to Eastman, uh, you know, on this very show. And um and I was pretty cool about it, but I allowed myself like a section. You know, it was like we we got the pleasantries over, and then I just said, okay, Kevin, uh, I need to get this out of the way. I'm gonna geek out here for like two or three minutes and then it's going to be over with it's never, it's never going to happen again. And, and you know, and I, I told him the story of me, like, you know, being in a, my, my, my family and I were on vacation in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm from Detroit, but uh, we had family down there and I'm in a mall um, and I'm like eight years old and like across the entire mall. Uh, I see this thing staring at me like through the window of a KB toy store. I still have it right here. I'm going to, this is great radio. <laughs> um, for the people listening on iTunes, and, but but I, I, I see this beautiful little monster staring back at me through the window, uh, and I don't know what it is or how it is, but I know that it's like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life, and I knew I had to have it. And um, and my you know I, my parents, they were not the kind kind of people to like get me something when we went out. You know, it was it was not like hey, I'm going to go in the toy store and get that. It was just like off limits. But like I literally like threw a fit in the middle of this mall and I would not leave until I got my Raphael and my Donatello. And it was, you know, and, and then, and then when I met Kevin, it was, it was this nice point because my, my four-year-old daughter had just uh, started watching Ninja Turtles on Hulu, like the, uh, one of the more recent incarnations and she fell in love with it and she was playing with uh, the new turtles toys and everything. And so it was like this generational thing for us. And so I got that all out uh, 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 to Kevin I think you really appreciated it. You know, I mean, oh. it's like the, 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 those are the stories you love to hear when you've created this thing is like how this yeah. has actually like He's... affected people's lives and stuff like that. Of, yeah. of all yeah. of the people I've met that have any kind of cultural impact like Kevin has had, I've never met someone who is more grateful for the fans or more appreciative yeah. of how lucky he got and how fortunate he is. He is absolutely not that guy who's like, oh, I'm, I got, I got rich and famous because I'm a genius who read the cultural moment properly and worked really hard. Like, no, it's a complete fluke. We did a joke, stupid thing that we never expected to do a second issue of, <laughs> and crazy people loved it, and God bless him, and, you know, 
Am I but recalling he, correctly that he wishes that he hadn't named them after uh, the Renaissance painters because they were difficult to spell? Was that something that I'm making up I in my think, head? Well, but... he, did, he misspelled Michelangelo right <laughs> off the bat, which is funny. Uh, I don't funny. think he. I don't think he particularly regrets it. I think he wishes he hadn't misspelled Michelangelo. <laughs> Yeah, he also he also did something that he probably wouldn't wouldn't have done if he knew, but he killed Shredder right away. Oh yeah, no, that's that that is yeah. one of the great yeah. one shot indications of that first comic. Yeah, and they waited twelve issues to bring him back because they didn't want to be like every other comic. Uh, but I always talk about I reread them recently because we did our own pastiche of the turtles called the radically rearranged Ronan Ragdolls. Uh, three Japanese girl cats named after uh, animation directors and uh, instead of Renaissance painters. But I had to go back and reread. I didn't have to, but I wanted to go back and reread. And like, it's so clearly two children telling you a story. It has such a great, and then this crazy thing happens. And then that crazy thing happens. And, I always point out the fact that they're in space by issue like four or five. An <laughs> editor and a publisher would have said, can we stick with the Daredevil parody for at least a year and have them fighting crime in New York City? Do we have to be on another planet with Triceratops aliens like issue four? You know, it's like they got off model and off brand so quickly because they were two kids who loved Star Wars and they wanted to do outer space. Right. which has nothing to do with the original premise, but they were like, screw the original premise. We're going to outer space for five issues. I, and, I, 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 th I think that was season four or five in that, in that Hulu series I was talking about, uh, the, yeah. the, the outter space and the Triceratops. That, and it, that, was, that, it was really well timed. Yeah. You yeah. never, if you launch that as a TV show yeah. with like episode one is essentially a daredevil parody. You don't mm -hmm. get to the star Wars parody on episode four. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's a lot. And uh, just that explosion of creativity without control to me is so much a part of what they accomplished and why it yeah. was popular. I think it was popular with children because it was, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And the idea of an overall narrative sanity to it is completely absent from it. But the, the power of creating something like that and having it be around forever, I sort of collect, because... I'm surprised that people, his other friends don't do this for him as much. I sort of collect pop culture references to the turtles because they're everywhere yeah. and send them to Kevin. I was watching an episode of the unbreakable uh, Kimmy Schmidt where she calls you. someone a, she calls someone a rat and then she goes, Oh, but that's so disrespectful to master splinter. <laughs> what? <laughs> and they had, she actually, that character makes turtles references a lot. And the genius of that is, she was kidnapped when she was 11 years old in the early 90s. Right. So, of course, like, the turtles were her whole world when she was a 12-year-old girl. So she keeps glomming back onto the things she's comfortable with. I love unapologetic media like that. Like, it just knows what it wants to be. And it's like, I'm just going to do it. And, and it will find uh, the people that it resonates with. It's well, not going to be, like, playing towards thought, anything. I've always said I'd rather see a brave failure than a cowardly success mm -hmm. you know what i mean i'd rather see a movie you know cronenberg's a great example of that not all of his movies are great they're all brave 
you never see a Cronenberg movie and went, oh, he made so many safe choices. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't, I don't know that the talking asshole on the back of the cockroach was the safest possible choice in a giant feature film released by a major studio, but you know, <laughs> to each their own. And I think, you know, I think going back around to what we all do, it's the, the great appeal of the creator owned thing is, is brave choices is, yeah. you know, we'd all like to work on, you know, there, there's a joy to working on the big franchisable, the giant franchises, but there's stuff they won't let you do. Uh, I, you know, I'm a huge lifelong James Bond fan and I'm mostly published by dynamite and dynamite has the James Bond license. Uh, try as I might, I am completely unable to come up with a pitch that I think Eon Productions would get behind because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do the thing that everybody's done already. And that all they want to do is the thing that everybody's done already. With the I, see that, I see that a lot in my, same way. Yeah, yeah, I see that a lot in my day yeah. job too. Like as a graphic designer, we we I work with a lot of like licensed stuff, and the well, one just the crazy just disparities in quality between like style guides is something that I'm always shocked with. That like Zorro can have a very in depth style guide, and they have very specific things that they want, but then something larger like I can't even think of anything off the top of my head now. They have like one page where they say, just go to the wiki and figure it out. I'm like, really? Right. Just, okay. But but there's then- a, a fan art for it, a uh, reference. The, yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the Zorro thing actually cracks me up. I wrote a four issue Zorro series a few years ago and they were great to work with actually. They allowed- They were fun, do- but they, they actually had like a, a huge- uh, library of stuff that you could work off of at least oh, yeah. for me um, visually and then it's it's just uh no and they're they're much more i think they're much more obsessed with the visual than they are with the written because yeah the only notes we got and this is just so beautiful in its craziness every issue is like page four panel five zorro's hat brim is one inch too short <laughs> every note was about Zorro, the size of Zorro's cowboy hat. That was That's so interesting. That his sombrero was too small. Uh, and I had a great artist and he was fine with making the hat bigger, lengthening the cape. No, the thing that really surprised me is I decided to dig into the, the Calif- I live in Los Angeles. I decided to dig into the California, Mestizo California part of it. Mm-hmm. And I was unaware that the great Chilean author Isabel Allende had written a Zorro novel. And they read my first issue and said, you should read the Isabel Allende novel because she's deeply into this Mexican Southern California culture that you're interested in. So read her and you can incorporate that stuff. And I was kind of surprised about that. But the last thing I'll say about the Zorro licensors that completely cracks me up is they're bluffing and no one is calling their bluff. Oh, yeah. Zorro is as public domain as anything that has ever existed. And we all, we pay a license to them. We let them pretend that they own Zorro, but not really a thing. <laughs> there are a couple of, yeah, a couple of yeah. licensors. Conan Doyle is like that. Edgar Rice Bros is like that, where it's like, yeah, guys, character created in 1914, I can kind of do whatever the hell I want with and you can't stop me. 
They're like, but I edited this image, and uh, so it's in my library now. So if you want to use the specific thing, then yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I honestly think that's part of the reason why they're so because um, they have rights to the their Zorro. Mm -hmm. you know, they if they mm -hmm. keep the brim a certain length, if they keep the cape a certain length, if they keep it really, that's why they're so specific. <laughs> yes, and then then they can yeah. you know claim their copyright that they've done this way. You know, I will so, say one of one of my favorite licenses to work with is the Bob Ross estate. The the women right. that work for that license are a delight. Everything you do, like we've done some really kind of off the wall meme things with Bob Ross, yeah. and everything we send, they're like, "This is the best thing we've ever seen." And I'm like, they just bring a smile to my face every time. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they put out such good products too. I mean, it's uh, but uh, 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 the, the Bob Ross estate has put out great products. And what's starting to happen? I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there is a a, a lot of great like Richard Simmons merchandise coming out now. Like Funko <gasps> just got a license, yes. and Esco just got a license, <laughs> and it's it's fucking amazing. Uh, Again, but, unapologetic, yeah. unapologetic, and that's what makes it nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they're they're they're. I have had. We we're just talking about this on Twitter this morning. I've been very lucky with my licensors. They have generally liked what I want. My editor's got a thing from P Betty Page Productions where there's like, we like everything he does. So if we're late approving something, just send it to press. We'll be fine. Like nice. we're not gonna. Oh, we're not gonna. Dream. We're not gonna. We, we just yeah. we just trust you to just keep keep you know. <laughs> He's got her on model in every issue, so don't worry about it, you know. And some people are very specific about very thing, few things. My favorite note ever was writing a Doc Savage, and I had it was about an experiment that went wrong. And the Doc Savage people said, Doc Savage doesn't have experiments that go wrong. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I needed the whole thing was predicated on an experiment going wrong. So I told the editor, I'm going to write a speech on page one where Doc Savage talks about how this is a very dangerous experiment that could go wrong, but it's so important I'm going to take the risk. And they loved that. As long as Doc was a, Doc couldn't be surprised by an experiment going wrong. That's He had to expect it. <laughs> he's too big of a super genius for that. But if it goes wrong because of his commitment to humanity, you know, at his own personal risk, they loved that. And I was like, I bet they're going to dig Doc making a sacrifice. My, my, my two kind of licensed uh, uh, property stories uh, or, or licensed property adjacent is um, I haven't shared this one before on the show. Um, I was working on a, uh, I, you know, I, I, I've worked on, you know, a few of these things, but I was working on a white noise sequel at one point. Um, and they, uh, they call me into the gold, gold circle was the uh, production company. And they call me into the gold circle offices and um, they set up this uh, this screening of White Noise One for me, um, and uh, I hadn't seen it before. But I'm a big Michael Keaton guy, um, and Keaton is great in everything, and he's great in that movie. However, I watched this thing, and you know, if you've seen White Noise, I mean, it's about I mean, basically like ghosts, uh, things from the after you know the afterlife are communicating with people in the real world through like electronic equipment, basically. Um, and I watched this movie. I watched 90 plus minutes of this movie and I didn't dislike it necessarily. It was interesting in a lot of ways. And again, Keaton is Keaton. Um, but in the end, I was just kind of confused and now I'm left to kind of like build a sequel out of this thing. Um, and I remember going <laughs> to the producers of this movie and being like, look, you know, I, um, I, I enjoyed this and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to move forward. However, like 
if I'm going to do this, we need to discuss, like, I need a list of the rules, you know, like, how does this work? I, I understand that, you know, beings from the afterlife are, are, are sort of communicating with people in the real world via, and, but, but I'm like, what, you know, what are the rules? Like, what is, what is the guidebook? Like, how do I apply that? And like they're quiet for you know a minute, and they all kind of look at each other, and they're like, "Yeah, there, 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 there are no rules." <laughs> are you the, are you the guy that wants to know where Edward Scissorhand gets the ice blocks at the end of the movie? <laughs> no, 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 no. This, this, this isn't this isn't me like nitpicking because it's like I, I have to go and construct a new movie out of this, and, and 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 I need to know how this works, and this is the main engine of of the world and of the film. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like a, you know, you have it at the beginning of every horror film, you have it. Okay. Well, we're being attacked by vampires. Here's how you kill them. Holy water, sunlight, uh, um, uh, you know, they hate garlic, uh, they steak in the heart. heart. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I wanted to know that they couldn't come up with it. They're like, yeah, just, just do what you want. You know, it might help <laughs> if you wrote it. And so, and, and, and so I'm, this is the sequel. This is not the first film, you know? And, 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 and so, so that was a funny thing. The, the funnier story, and maybe I've shared it here before, was um, I was working on something uh, uh, that uh, Jason Statham was set to star in. And, and I'm, I'm known primarily as like a poppy action movie writer. I've, I've, that's what I've written for 15 years. And I'm pretty damn good at it. And I'm pretty damn good at, at, at writing fight scenes uh, just because I've done it so much I can do it in my sleep. And so, we turn in a draft of the script and, and write what I think are pretty great fight scenes um, and uh, and got great feedback on it from other people. And then Statham's people, uh, they they read it and they're like, you know, uh, they're like, you know, we, we like the script in general, but we have some notes specific on the fight scenes. And, 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 and I'm like, okay, this guy's an action star, of course. Like maybe, you know, he wants it a certain way. Like, hey, uh, look at Krav Maga videos and have them fight more like that. I've, I've had those notes before and that that's all great stuff because you want Jason to like, you know, uh, feel confident uh, going into these things. You want it to be him and not random action star. Um, but they're like, uh, yeah, th- this section here where, uh, where he gets hit with the bat and, 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 and he falls down and this section here where he takes the kick to the sternum and he falls down but then he gets back up and kicks the shit out of five guys. It's like, yeah, 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 that's not going to work. And and uh, and I'm like, well, well, why doesn't it work? That's just, you know, that's <laughs> that's what you see in every action movie. And they're like, well, well, uh, uh, Jason doesn't go down. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so, 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 literally, you know, like that, that is his brand. He is such a he is such an unstoppable fucking badass that he cannot he cannot take a fall. Like he he can he can take a beating. He can take. 25, 30 punches in a fight, but he can never fall down. He can never appear winded. He is just an unstoppable runaway train badass. And and, and so writing these action scenes where like your you know, your guy just just walks effortlessly like through thirty guys in a in a room or something like that, and cannot cannot take a a strong hit, cannot be you know uh, uh, deterred in any way, cannot be slowed, cannot be. Um, it was it was a trip. And then and then like the interesting sort of like you know uh, uh uh epilogue to that is is the rock is is the same way and and vin diesel <laughs> is the same way and so so in the in the later fast and the furious movies and it, w- w- one of my claims to fame i haven't i haven't written on fast and the furious but i've written for i can't remember if it's six or seven of the direct uh, uh, of the, uh, the the directors of six or seven of the nine movies at this point but so i've worked a lot with those people and and i hear these stories and stuff like that um and so they can't go down either. And so, but in the later Fast and the Furious movies, you have 
The Rock versus Jason Statham. You have The Rock versus Vin Diesel. And, <laughs> and, 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 and none of them can go down. And none They're of them just can punching each other. other into eternity. And so they have these, like, they have these epic, like, super, it's just like mm. Superman fighting Superman Poppy. You know what I'm saying? Where it's just like, just haymakers, punches, slamming each other through walls. And, and it's like, nobody can take a fall. <laughs> nobody can appear winded. No, it, it, they, they fight for like 10 minutes and then it's a draw and something else like makes them stop. That's the, uh, and that is the state of action movies these days. Usually a big giant machine gun on a helicopter outside the building pops in and they have to stop. Yeah, it's like, it's like I, we, I could take down this helicopter, but you know, some other people might get hurt. So let's, uh, let's table this and, uh, and call it a draw. I, I actually heard in Hollywood there's two other actors that are the same way. I think the first one's Godzilla and the other one's King Kong. <laughs> there, there you go. That's by the way, I don't this is I don't know if you remember this. The greatest trailer I have ever seen in my life, the greatest teaser trailer, it ran with a sneak preview of Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. And boy, am I aging myself Love in that. every possible way with this. But it was just words on white letters on black background and it was and i gave away the punchline but it was like in the 1950s one of the biggest stars ever appear in motion pictures premiered became a giant star and then slowly faded into obscurity it was like maybe 10 cards telling this whole story about this movie. and you could hear people behind going uh marilyn monroe <laughs> james dean whatever and then they cut to a giant cinemascope Godzilla grabbing at airplanes with lasers going through the air <laughs> and the audience exploded, especially an audience there to see a Pee Herman movie. Yeah. That was like, I have never seen a better setup than that. Cause it, and it was Godzilla 1985 was the movie that was coming out. And there hadn't been like an English dubbed American released Godzilla movie since the seventies. I don't think, but it was just such a, I was in awe of the marketing genius that went, no, Godzilla is the punchline in this video, We don't, in this trailer. We don't open with Godzilla. We open with some giant star from the 50s is coming back and you're not ready for it. Um, but yeah, the, which goes to the whole, you know, the power that we all work with, the power of culturally resonant imagery, which is, you know, why, why you want to work with Batman, why you want to, because you can, you can file the serial numbers off and create something great. And the authority is actually a pretty great example of filing the serial numbers off of famous characters and making something great. Uh, Astro city is better than most of the things it is pastiching, honestly. Uh, but it's undeniable that writing Zorro is writing Zorro, man. Writing Batman is writing that. Like yeah. it's it's hard, you know. And yeah, you might be up against an entire committee telling you Batman can't do this and Batman can't do that. But uh, and I have found a perfect way to loop right back into what we started this whole conversation with, which was excellent. transitioning. And the, the, it's actually been really nice because in my day job. As I've mentioned, I work with a lot of licensed properties, and it's been a really nice change of pace to transition into a, a creator owned property to, to do something where the world has yet to be fully explored and built. And the freedom that comes with that is so nice oh, yeah. to, uh, to really like if, if something is making me laugh while I'm, I'm drawing the panel, 
and I like get really into it and like my tongue sticks out and I, I'm sure like Chris is just sitting in the corner like watching me. What is, is she laughing about as I'm just like giggling as I'm drawing on the pad. It's, it's not something to, I would so much rather be drawing on the Cobblestone Chronicles than on uh, any well-known property right now. Because that, it's going to be the next well-known property. Well, there, there's definitely that, but there's definitely that that feeling of freedom and that feeling of not having to go. Okay, what hasn't been covered? It is a particular kind of genius to look at something and go, okay, this is great. It's been great for eighty years. What the hell new thing can we do with it? And that's that is its own that is its own special property. And I think that some of the best comic book people are better at that than they are at, and some of the best movie people, honestly. Alan Moore and, uh, and, in, and in movies, I would say, uh, trying to remember the name of the director, writer of Wrath of Khan, uh, but like there are people who are better with writing Sherlock Holmes stories than they are with creating a new character. Right. Uh, I think Alan Moore's work with other people's characters is better than his work with his own characters. I think it is unmistake. It is unmistakably better, you know. That's starting an argument right there. <laughs> no, I know, but but by this Shots by the token that the Watchmen starts out as other people's characters and files. Well, I mean, top ten. I mean, it's 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 definitely taking it, it, it. Alan Moore. I agree with you on that. That his swamp thing. His you know his you know what what. What Alan Moore does in comics is like no other. And I've, mm -hmm. I've had the pleasure of not only working with Alan uh, Moore um, on, uh, you know, his, his uh, America's Best Comics with Tom Strong and, and uh, Top Ten and, and, you know, just seeing what he has produced. But I got the, I got the, literally the privilege to read his scripts. And, and if, if a normal comic script is this, you know, oh, like yeah. script, his scripts are this. And yeah. he puts so much into everything that what you read, I mean, this is why he doesn't like his movies. You know, this is why he doesn't like anything that Hollywood ever does um, because they take, you know, so much backstory and they throw it away that he's already given them. And then they put, you know, uh, you know, basically garbage back in to fill what they've taken away when he's already yeah. instructed you know, the, the Bible of what his project is. And so like his, his top 10, I, I, I am blood top 10 is one of my favorite books of all time um, for just the TV show. I mean, when we like, I like, I like Brooklyn nine, nine. I like all these different cop shows. If top 10 was a, a, a cop show. Yeah. Top 10 is a cop show ever. And top, top 10 um, is a great comic. I, I don't, I don't, and of all of his things that I like, I'd say that owes the least to other projects. But right. there is like one issue of that that's just a homicide episode transcribed yeah. as a as a superheroes episode. And, and to go back to your point of of other characters, one of his best America's best comics um, is is uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is really other people's characters, all other people's characters, he's reinvented. So I I get what you're saying. It's just I find that no matter what he does is absolutely brilliant. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I just I I like his Tom Strong. I enjoyed, but it's like 
to me, it's like reading an endless satire of Superman comics and I enjoy it and it's good, but it, without Superman comics, it's, there's sort of, there, there's nothing in the mix that is be, it's more Alan Moore going, well, if they gave me Superman, this is what I would have done with him, but they never gave me Superman. I mean, honestly, Stained, Stained is my Batman story. You know, mm -hmm. you, you give me Batman, Stained, I mean, I think I said this on the panel, you know, you give me, you give me Batman, I'm going to produce something like Stained. Oh, you yeah. Know? And, you, and again, that's, I'm just saying that's its own, I'm not yeah. saying that's greater or lesser. I'm saying it's its own kind of talent to take a thing that's been around forever and go, what's yeah. mine? I always use the example of the Fantastic Four. If someone called me and said, you're writing the Fantastic Four tomorrow, I'm sure within a week I would come up with a pitch that I love, but my initial reaction would be, I guess what, uh, Dr. Doom again, like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and that I, Marvel thing with, with most of Hollywood isn't so much the writer, director, or film crew, or actors, but it's the executives that are demanding certain things because, you know, in reality, you know, it's so hard to make a Batman movie bad, and yet they do. Nothing kills a good oh, idea quicker or, than an executive. But I, yeah. but I will, I will say though, have like really great, you know, points, and then all of a sudden they add this scene, like, what are you doing? You know, mm -hmm. Fantastic Four. How do you blow a Fantastic Four movie? Well, they've done it several times. Three times. Just Too many cooks in the kitchen. Three, yeah, every three, time. Yeah. Three yeah. times is kind of amazing. Like there, there are bad Batman movies, but there aren't like three terrible Batman movies in a row. Like that's that's really oh, that's man. really trying. No, and but there, <laughs> maybe there, there might be actually maybe there actually is three in a row. But well, <laughs> yeah, two or three? Did they give him a third one? I don't know. No, uh, they didn't give Schumacher a third. Okay, one. just have the two. Just the Batman and Robin. They're like, okay, let's let's end it there. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but I will I will say that one of the things that impresses me is to strip mine a good idea out of a... They've always said that uh, you don't remake something good. You remake, remake something that had a good idea but was not well mounted, but the idea was not well served. I'm sure these comics have their huge fans, but I personally, I did not like the Winter Soldier run. I love Brubaker. The Winter Soldier run in the Captain America comics left me totally cold. And I was uninterested in it. Uh, the, the Civil War arc yeah. in Marvel Comics. Hated them. Could not have hated them more. Those are two great movies. And when they announced those titles, I was like, ugh. But it goes back to this your point. Is, and by the way, those are like, like I said, Brubaker's yeah. a great writer. Right. But whoever wrote the Captain movie. America Winter Soldier... Yeah. Did a better job than he did. Like, yeah, I mean, it's the whole crew. We, I mean, from our very first conversation about the comic community of of who you work with, you know how every every role is important. It's the same in that movies. I mean, it just goes to show you. I mean, look at Spider Man Homecoming and Spider Man uh, Away from Home. Those mm -hmm. are the two best Spider Mans of all time. Is it because yep. you know technology had changed? No, I mean we had enough technology, but it was yeah. that the idea behind the story and the commitment to the story of who these characters are mm -hmm. is what is the, you know, not saving grace, but the, the true, you know, um, 
ignition to the movie. It's not, hey, we're going to have, you know, Spider-Man do this and this. And it's going to be so cool. You know, no one's going to ever fall down in this action scene. You know, it's it's not that. It's what is the story? Well, the story is the dude needs to fall down. You know, right. he needs to, he, and, and how is he going to fall down? One time it's him just going to make a mistake and making a bad call and get this suit taken away from him. But he's going to redeem himself. The next time is he's going to think he's not good enough. So he's going to give away a gift, you yep. know, that someone gave him because they did believe in him. And then he's going to realize he made him another, another mistake. Like it's a, it's a constant mm-hmm. battle, you know, of, of who he is personally. And that is the movie where if you look at the other Spider-Man movies, they really did lack any, you know, type of progression into the hero. You know, yep. it might've been an argument. It might've been a conflict, but there was really no growth. And as we all know, you know, we're all creators. Growth is such a huge thing. Um, you know, luckily in kids books, you know, I don't have to put as much growth into the characters and yet there still is growth. You know, there still is, you know, a a sense of, of learning and, and, and discovery. And, you know, I think it's, it, it's often, uh, it's sometimes expressed, I think is the difference between plot and story. Uh, you know, plot is easy. This happens, then this happens and this happens. And at the end, this happens. Story is why does it happen and what do we get out of the fact that it happens and what did the, what did the what did the protagonist process from the experience of it happening? And I will say some I have started comic book series with only a glimmering of what the story might be. You know what I mean? I have a plot and I have an idea of like here's what lesson we might learn by issue four. But I'm not sure because I, you know, a lot of times I'm writing first issues on very tight deadlines, and I'm I always use the metaphor of like I'm throwing lettuce and radishes and carrots in cucumber in the air, and then running around with a bowl for three issues, catching them in a way that I hope makes a salad um, that is edible and satisfying. Well, that's a, it, yeah, it's it, so I, I, I mean, David, it's like, uh, I, I mean, the, the uh, comparing, you know, Cobblestone Chronicles to, to Spider-Man uh, uh, Homecoming, it's, it's an interesting comparison because I think that, um, you know, I think that what both do uh, very interestingly is they tap into some, something kind of like universal, something, you know, a, a like a universal part of the human experience. Okay. Um, the problem with these other Spider-Man films you're talking about and the problem with, uh, you know, a Jason Statham movie is like, you know, we've not experienced that, right? It's like, uh, in those other Spider-Man movies, he gets a suit and then he becomes kind of, he, then he walks on water, right? He, he has, he, he has, he has plot complications to overcome, but no internal conflict and no, it, 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 you know, he's just, he's a superhero and, and, and you don't understand that sort of superhero. And I think it's a, it's a problem with a lot of the DC movies, right? Is that they're over here and you're here. Whereas like, I think all of these like Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, like you understand something about the character's internal conflict, their mirrors, you see yourself in them. And, and I mean, I, I gave you a quote for uh, for Cobblestone Chronicles. You sent me uh, the, the issue last week. And the quote, I, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it starts off with something along the lines of it, it put me right back in the sixth grade. Uh, you have this character who's who's in the sixth grade, and and I recognized that character immediately. It was me back then, and and I was right back there. And so so every, so everything that was happening to him and the way he was he was thinking and kind of uh, rationalizing, moving through the world, I understood it. You were right back there, and it's something that they do great with these Spider-Man films. Is is again he's he is a kid, right? He is he is a he is a high school kid 
who is, um, I mean, it's almost like getting his superpowers is almost this, like this allegory for like, uh, going through puberty. You know what I'm saying? He's going through changes in his life. <laughs> you know, suddenly he can like swing from buildings and, and, uh, and walk up buildings. And, uh, uh, he's, he is becoming a man, uh, but it is on this much grander scale, but we understand it immediately because we've all gone through it. Um, and, and, he, and, and also uh, in the larger, larger, in the larger Marvel movies, he serves a little bit as an audience surrogate in that way, because he's impressed with Captain Marvel in a way we would be impressed with Captain Marvel, but maybe yeah. Captain America yeah. isn't as, you know what I mean? It, he's an yeah. audience well, surrogate in that way as he's yeah. awed by everybody. Right. Yeah. For, all, for all my scripts in comics, I use story editors. And because I, I don't think, I don't think it's a good thing for me to put a bunch of stuff on paper without ever being questioned about why I put it on there. And so I always use story editors to go through it. Um, if someone who's, who it, I, I trust, you know, in terms of, you know, um, you know, to, to convey, you know, my idea to them without them, you know, changing the idea, but challenging the idea. And every single time my story editors always say something like, well, what do you think about explaining this? And I always say, no, my audience I trust is smarter than that. And if they're not smarter than that, they will be after reading the book. Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's on our young readers or stained or any of my other projects. Um, and I feel like that's actually what Marvel cinematic universe does with all their movies. Um, which is why we all cried at Endgame as opposed to any Fantastic Four movie, you know, where it's just like, oh, look, they're explaining exactly what they're doing, you know, for every well, single- and, and, you know, and Zack Snyder managed to kill Superman and leave me completely dry-eyed. And man, is that a trick. I, I wouldn't <laughs> believe that was possible, that you, could no, still, I, I, that you could kill Superman and I would not care even a little bit. Right. It, that I, is some I, wild, I, wild uh, incompetence. I was just going to say, I, I've been in development meetings at Warner Brothers, not in those specific movies, but, but the feedback you get is what are the trailer moments, right? It's not, it's not, why is this character doing this here and, and all that stuff. It's like, what, you know, what are we going to blow up? What, you know, what, what, what let's see a plane I, go down I, here. This is the all Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman was done wonderfully, yet both of the movies ended with such an epic world-ending event that one person shouldn't be powerful enough to, to solve. Yet, yeah. all of a sudden, she is. In yeah. Green Lantern, as bad as that was, same thing. You know, the yeah. Superman movies. You know, when, you know, people, uh, you know, talked about, well, he just let a whole... He, he went and saved the, the ship that was blowing up the ocean instead of the one that was blowing up Manhattan. You know, yeah. and then he that one second you know it's like they they lost so much actual uh connection with comic fans and just people like literally human beings yeah by just looking for the epic scene instead yeah. of the actual story that then becomes epic well that's the you know the, there i wrote an essay the that year because man of steel star trek into darkness mm -hmm. and skyfall all had had Captain Kirk, Superman, and James Bond all essentially 
completely fail in their missions. Right. Superman did not protect Metropolis. Captain Kirk let a starship crash into San Francisco, and I don't want to think about how many people that killed. James right. Bond, his mission was to protect M. Oh, well, she's dead. The To me, it's like, that would be like if Goldfinger ended with Goldfinger blowing up Fort Knox with an atomic bomb and the happy ending was, well, but I got Goldfinger. It's like, yeah, but the <laughs> thing that you were actually supposed to fucking do, like right. heroes don't let 150,000 people die. The minute your plot requires that the villain kills 150,000 people and then the hero wins, I'm like, no, they lost. They failed completely to to be a hero. Why we all cried when Tony Stark did that. You know, yeah. like it meant something. Small moment. Yeah, yeah. True. It's a true heroic gesture of sacrifice that he did constantly throughout the movie. Yet this was the ultimate one that we were mm -hmm. told by Doctor Strange he was going to do. You know, yeah. like I mean, it, even though we knew he was going to do it, you know, why he was so important, it still hit. Because it was truly sacrifice and not just a big, I'm not going to fall on the ground moment. Well, mm -hmm. and, and, and Marvel had to figure out how to do that because, because while, I mean, the Marvel movies have always been great. And I, I, I still maintain that I think Iron, the, the first Iron Man movie is maybe the best tentpole I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, it's just, just so clean and so great. But those early MCU movies, they still suffer from the, and then they fight third act. Right. That's the, you know, the uh, Iron Man is incredible. And then, you know, the, the final 30 minutes of the movie is just them fighting. Um, and it's a great fight, but you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's a, it's trailer moment it's noise, less right? interesting than everything that comes before. Yeah, but, but, but they've gotten a lot better in end game is, you know, end game. They, I mean, it, it hit, you know, it, they set up two, it's two movies, almost like it's like five plus hours worth of like character conflicts and little, uh, and, 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 and little threads that run through the entire movie and the entire series by that point. Right. Like, there were threads that started in that original Iron Man movie that finally get tied up at the end of Endgame in, in that final 30 minutes. And that's what you see that, I mean, that, that final 30, I mean, the final 30 or 40 minutes of, of Endgame is, is absurd in like a great way, but it is like, it's thread getting tied up, thread getting tied up, this paying off, this paying off, this paying off, this paying off. It's all of this character stuff coming mm -hmm. into, uh, you know, and then there's like the women get together and it's political commentary, whether like you think that's a great moment or not. And in uh, all of this stuff, it's like they 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 have learned their lesson, and they are kind of like howling at the fucking moon while they are oh, paying all this shit off, and it's great. And yeah. look at my, my whole thing of calling that a political commentary is only is, it goes back to what R RBG said uh, of no one would bat an eye exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So let's yeah. not bat an eye. Yeah, so no, like, that, that that's was, great that to call that the RBG moment. Because yeah. there's there's your Supreme Court. Yeah, to a lifelong comic fan, someone actually had to point out to me that it was all women. Because all yeah. I saw was, was a bunch of amazing heroes lined up ready to, you know, take and it's, it down. It's, it's yeah. set up beautifully well. It's it's it is not out of it's not like you know, it's accused of being out of left field. It's not. It's not even close organic. And also it's this is a great point because there's that thing, I always call it you know, soundstage-itis, that thing where the last hour, half hour to an hour movie is just a bunch of dumb shit and a soundstage and I feel claustrophobic and I don't feel like I'm outdoors no matter how hard you try, no matter how many green screens you put in. And Marvel has really mastered not having those final scenes have that claustrophobic 
And one of my favorite examples, because and I don't think they've even topped it in a way, the end of Civil War, they do something unthinkable in that kind of movie. They set you up for Tony and Captain America are going to find this secret fortress and there's going to be 300 super soldiers there and they're going to take them out. And they get there and know it's a trap for these two guys to punch each other in the face for 10 minutes. <laughs> and it works because the stakes are emotional rather than, I really wanted to see 250 super soldiers. Mm -hmm. It's like, fuck you, you wanted to see spectacle. We're giving you heart instead. Right. And it's just going to be these three guys and they're, you know, the guy fighting for his best friend, the guy fighting to avenge his parents, the right. guy fighting to survive. That's the try. And the guy who set it all up totally has a valid justification of Tony Stark and Captain America being responsible for all of this pain and suffering he's got, he's had in his life. Yeah, he's, he's, me, not, he's not really a bad guy. He he's has not a, a bad guy at all. He's he, a guy he, who's he, grinding he, an axe for pretty, pretty responsible reasons. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. to me, that's the you know, that's the the pinnacle right you probably for another eight hours. Easy. Yeah, we, <laughs> I, I wanted to I wanted to quote one thing, uh what you were saying about not over explaining things. I have this I think it's 20 pieces of writing advice from Billy Wilder. And one of them is always let the audience add two plus two to get four, and they will love you for it. If you let them do it, if you let an audience go, I see what's going to happen next. I know where this goes. They feel so smart and they feel so good and they feel so on, they're part of your team experiencing the story. And man, if you can do that for them, you know, it's one of the smartest things you can do as a writer. And I will say My, uh... that I think that uh, one thing that David has really nailed with the story in Cobblestone is not over explaining things to people, which allows it, I'm, this is like word of the day for me, which allows it to be something that people can transition with as a story as they get older too. If there's something that a kid's gonna like and then they're gonna read it again and they're gonna see something new mm -hmm. because it wasn't just spelled out on the page and they were able to put the two and two together and see something new depending on what age they are. Yep, absolutely. My uh, my first writing job in Hollywood, I wrote uh, uh, for the Spanish director named Fer Fernando Trueba, who uh, won the Oscar for foreign language film with Bella Polk. And when he accepted that Oscar, uh, he got up on stage and he said, uh, I don't know if I believe in God, but I believe in Billy Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty fucking magical, but uh, maybe uh, go ahead. Oh, wait, I think we're getting pineapple. Pineapple. I think pineapple is coming. And then we will wrap up while we're waiting. Uh, David, uh, we usually like to end these things with where we can find people and what they're doing and all of that. Um, you could find me. Um, I'm actually reworking my whole website. I'm going to build a new uh, website where uh, you can follow a lot more detailed, you know, um, information about me uh, and my projects. Uh, hopefully that will launch uh, soon. Until then, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at myzombies. Um, you can just search David Barron comics. And <laughs> Fantastic. Incredible. Uh, you can also go to the stores. I, I've done some Batman projects recently um, uh, for, for all of 2020 and, and going into 2021. Um, 
I'm kind of all over the place, you know, with DC right now. Uh, but uh, in the end of this year, definitely look out for uh, four creator-owned books, you know, coming coming your way. Great. Elisa? Oh, you need to unmute yourself, I think. Yeah. I said that I would get out the hedgehog. So, you can see me on Instagram at Elisa Wiki Draws Things, and I'm on Twitter at Elisa Wiki. And I, there's a lot of great Gallery 1988 shows in the mix for the year still. And great. so, yeah. The year Love will it. go on, and you'll then my cobblestone debut. <laughs> When is Cobblestone coming out? I know you said you had a, a short out through uh, Brave New World, but when's the whole thing coming? We we have a tentative release uh, at the end of 2021. So at the end of this year, we hope to have it out. Um, it'll be actually ready uh, probably in what, April, May? We'll say May will be fully polished and designed. Uh, and then um, we are just debating on, on publishing and, and how we want to do it. We have some proposals out there. Uh, with some big publishers, and if we can get a big publisher, uh, it'll have to go on their schedule and when they want it out because uh, you know uh, that's that's how it works. Uh, if it's on our um, schedule, it'll definitely be out. You know, by the the last quarter of this year. And this is an OGN. How many pages? This is this is uh, it's a it's a book series. Um, okay. They're all they're sixty four page um, graphic novels. Um, they each have their own self-contained story. We have three of them planned um, uh, and plotted out. And then, uh, you know, definitely we're more than willing to, you know, if the demand hits to keep going with these uh, characters. We, we already fell in love with the characters from day one. I mean, it's, it's, it's they're, you know, they're ageless, timeless characters. And, um, but yeah, the first, the first uh, book is fully written uh and is well on the way of of having all the art completed yeah, yeah. <laughs> great yeah. it's a great it's a great book like i said i got a preview of it and i was uh i was very excited about it um uh something that you know something that i loved reading and that i think my even my four-year-old girl would love reading and so it's a it's a uh a kids and adults alike uh, sort of situation and those are always great right. uh, where and, can the kids and, find you um, I am, uh, on all forms of social media at Ryland Grant. If you're listening, it's R Y L E N D G R A N C. I always spell it cause it's not a real name. Uh, my parents just kind of drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. Um, uh, my, my books, uh, uh my books, Banjax and Aberrant are available at fine comic shops everywhere and, uh, on Amazon and Comixology and all that good noise. Um, uh, my other books, uh, The Jump and The Peacekeepers, uh, were, uh, released, uh, this last year via Kickstarter and can still be, uh, uh had on Backerkit. If you go to, um, The Peacekeepers, all one word, dot backerkit.com, you'll find a, a pretty cool shop there with Jump stuff, Peacekeeper stuff, and then there's all sorts of, uh, Aberrant and Banjax rare goodies, uh, con variants you could only get, you know, uh, for three days at SDCC in 2018 and all that noise. It's the only place to get a signature from me right now because none of us are going to cons. So, uh, so check that out. There's a lot of cool stuff there and um, look for um, uh, the jump issue two on Kickstarter uh, sometime in uh, March, probably. Nice. I'm yeah. easy. All my stuff is at David that has links to the Twitters and the Instagrams and news about what's going on and, what I'm doing and how I'm 
variously wasting my time. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to David and Elisa for joining us. It was a really great show and wonderful to talk to you guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.